The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language. Tuesday, the 20th of November, 2018. Nicholas Fryer explains the archetypical Arizona senator. Probably handsome once, but now looks like the only thing that's keeping him from his usual hobby of kitty fiddling is his kidney problem. He explains breakfast... Work rather like breakfast is something to let other people do while you're lying down with a book in a different room. And we talk about pies. Yes, pies, because this is the 9pm arch window of the baked goods. This morning, my breakfast consisted of two fried eggs along with a grilled tomato, a mushroom and a small zucchini sliced lengthwise. That's a... Courgette, if you're French or British or maybe American. I don't quite know what Americans call zucchinis. Uh, Plus two slices of dark rye bread. Now, this is not typical. Nor are sausages, which uh, I I, I sometimes have for breakfast and you may often have for breakfast. Uh, But they're fairly rare for me. Or baked beans, you know, they're kind of desperate really. And look, I don't do toast at all. Why recook fresh bread? Surely toast is what you do with stale bread. But, you know, if you're having a uh, a sandwich in the morning from one of those little stalls in the city, you really have to kind of shoot them in the head first before they put your very perfectly fine ham and cheese sandwich into a toaster. What is wrong with these people? Look, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Because I usually have fried rice, and I'm intrigued by this because this causes some vex amongst people. I'm not sure whether that's the right grammar, but who cares at at this hour? Fried rice is great. If you are any kind of sensible person at all, you will have cooked rice in the refrigerator so you can quickly fry it up to make a meal. People get confused by these stereotypes. I remember when my ex, Pong, and I uh, were in Bangkok. Uh, He is of Thai extraction. And uh, the staff at the hotel were most confused because uh, he would order a big breakfast uh, and I would order rice soup, which is a lovely thing to have in the morning, a kind of seafoody rice soup. And the staff would come and give me the big breakfast and him the rice soup. And we'd have to gently explain that they'd got it the wrong way around. Snarky Platypus on the Twitters, uh, he has joined me in quite a few conversations about the uh, uh, the idiocy of people's default assumptions uh, about uh, about breakfast. Uh, I remember one tweet, he said, uh, I like white people who repeatedly insist rice cannot be breakfast food. Look, keep your white supremacy away from food, okay, but I know you can't help yourselves. And look, he's right. Uh, he's, he's also tweeted he has a breakfast of tuna, rice and beans. Um, I I have fried rice, I have curries for breakfast, although he does admit he's had a breakfast consisting of uh, those things aforementioned and a maxi bon or a golden gay time for dessert. Um, breakfast desserts are an interesting concept, I, I will admit. I was surprised once when someone staying uh, up here at Bunjeri Cottages, a person of colour no less, said, you can't eat rice every day. 
And I thought, what, are two billion people on the planet wrong? What is wrong with rice every day? It's one of the world's great staple foods. Uh, the platypus notes that rendang makes a good breakfast, and it does. Uh, curry from the night before is a fantastic breakfast food. And before you get all kind of thing about it, haven't you had cold pizza for breakfast the next day? I know I have. Now, Dylan Moran, it must be said, uh, is Irish. He understands breakfast. Um, I've been watching uh, quite a bit of stand-up comedy lately on the Tube of Views, and one of Dylan Moran's shows uh, from 2009 is called What It Is. Uh, the version online, uh, which is also on DVD, whatever they are, was recorded at Sydney State Theatre in uh, November 2009. My God, that's uh, nine years ago. Anyway, in one bit, he talks about the misery of the morning, that time after you've succumbed to the inner beast demanding more, more, more. You really need to uh, see the thing to understand the inner beast. No, you don't really. It's just that's what your your inner beast wants, right? It wants more of all the bad, evil things. And the next morning, you regret it. The next morning, you're waiting for your face to drain. And how do they lure you back into the world, into the human race, into consciousness itself, with the great traditional breakfast? As eaten here and in Britain and Ireland and lots of other places. Fried slices of dead pig. Tubes of dead pig, some fungus and a chicken's period on a plate. Welcome back! We missed you while you were sleeping! Enjoy! You can always go for the healthy option, of course you can, of course you can! Some yummy cereal, mmm, dust with milk. This is right there on the box. The big primary coloured letters contains fibre. Goody gumdrops. I was up all night fantasising about fucking fibre. <laughs> you know that feeling when you get a belly full of fibre and you can skip around the room taunting everybody who didn't get theirs? <laughs> Remember all those times in your life when you stop strangers in the street and scream at them, I need some fibre! Lies and corruption! Yes, breakfast is nothing but lies and corruption. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Joining me for this episode of The Edict is Nicholas Fryer. Nicholas, tell me about breakfast in your house. Oh, hello first. Sorry, I'm being very rude. How are you going, Still? I'm, look, I'm fabulous, thank you. As we record this, it is a sunny afternoon in the Blue Mountains. It's been a rainy day in Adelaide, but we're doing all right. Excellent. Tell me about breakfast in your house. It has evolved over the years. When I was a kid, breakfast was one of those things that, that my father did to me. Um, I think it was how he <laughs> – okay. it, was, it, was, it was his contribution to smashing the patriarchy, which was uh, – in which he was perhaps slightly ahead of his time in the 1970s, uh, involved – uh, Dad always cooking breakfast. Uh, I don't know if that's the reason why, as, more or less as soon as I left home, I've never eaten breakfast ever again, and I now, uh, on the rare occasions when I'm still in the house- What, what at all? You don't no, I don't eat breakfast. No, no. I, 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 I have coffee for breakfast and eat first at about 12.30. 
And um, uh, on the on occasions when I am in the house, when other people are eating breakfast, I'm usually hiding in a different room while Anna tries to get uh, cereal or toast into children, something that has got easier over the years. These days it can happen without uh, the intervention of peacekeeping forces and uh, decontamination squads. It certainly looked a bit like that in the in the early years when breakfast was a process merely of uh, generally of smearing food around the kitchen. But uh, <laughs> yes, isn't being a parent fun? It is um, allegedly. Yeah, which is why I avoid it whenever I possibly can. So no, breakfast and I have had a, a long and complex relationship. Uh, now deep into our fourth decade of divorce, probably. Excellent to hear. Now, we, we have selected a number of things to talk about through this uh, episode. Uh, and look, you're, you're, you're going first, I've decided. Yeah, I'm prepared to do that. I um, Go for it. Thank you very much. I, yeah, th- there have been some fantastic stories uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, and of course, any politics junkie has had half an eye on the American midterms to see if uh, the, the, the nightmare is, has any uh, signs of coming to an end. Uh, and my favourite story out of the four United States. Four more years. Four more years. Yes, four, well, six, four six from years. here. Yeah, all too likely, I fear. Um, well, my, but but the, the story that, that in, in captured my attention was, uh, was the end of sanity in Arizona. And I did a bit of digging around. There's Senate race in Arizona. I did a bit of digging around in relation to this because I, I was intrigued by it. It's what, the, the, the history of the United States is, is so rich and complex one realizes that one has a, an image of the United States of these 50 states uh, going back forever. But, of course, it's been slowly put together piecemeal, and Arizona only obtained statehood in 1912. And it managed to do it managed to sign up for women's suffrage at the same time, uh, which was eight years in advance of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave uh, the rest uh, gave women the vote across the United States. And apart from that, that's actually quite remarkable because uh, New Zealand was the first on the planet um, at like only a few years before that, and uh, uh, the colony of South Australia followed a couple of years after that, I think. And yeah, so, 1893 um, and 1894, I think New Zealand and, and South Australia. So getting so this is only you know this is less than twenty years it later. Is, it is, but it was obviously the time. Um, when the the movement was sweeping, and by that stage, a number of states I think had signed up, and and the Nineteenth Amendment had been passed, I believe, but was awaiting ratification uh, by the sufficient majority of states, I think, which is the trigger to bring it to make it law. I'm sure there's an American constitutional lawyer listening who will correct us if we're wrong. Oh, that's good. They can write in. Um, I can write into you uh, and and because <laughs> you don't really care all that much, <laughs> well, I'm, do you? I'm in a different state. <laughs> So tell Stegarian, phone, phone Stilgarian, he loves that. Um, but the only other thing I knew <laughs> no, about- I don't, I don't answer the phone. <laughs> the only other thing I knew about Arizona before that was, of course, it's it's home to the, the world's largest hole in the ground. The was Nixon that, Monument. <laughs> Sorry, it, that, he, that's, that's, that's a uh, reference to a cartoon by B. Cleban. Is he lying <laughs> I'll, face I'll down? I'll link to that. <laughs> uh, no, 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 it's just- uh, uh, it just shows a whole lot of people standing around the rim of like this hole in the ground. It's just the Nixon Monument. Well, if, if it manages to dwarf the Grand Canyon, then it would be impressive indeed, which would be a genuine achievement by by the that president. Um, but having but it, when I heard about the Arizona Senate race, I, I I dug up a bit of the history books and I found that between 1912, when women's suffrage came in, and and this year. 
the people of, of that formerly great state had set a model of political stability by electing essentially the same guy 200 times. And the guy was white uh, in late middle age and a Republican. And and this is the important part. He was a guy, always a guy, dark suit, white shirt, understated tie. If you imagine a generic US senator, you're probably thinking of a bloke about 60, probably handsome once, but now looks like the only thing that's keeping him from his usual hobby of kitty fiddling is his kidney problem. That that guy, that's him. Uh, all of you don't the- have much of a of a positive view of American senators, do you? <laughs> all of the US senators from Arizona since 2012 look like that. Uh, I mean, for, for about 150 of those 100 years, the guy's name was Barry Goldwater, uh, old extremism in defense of liberty itself. Um, and until August of this year, the two senators from Arizona were Jeff Flake and John McCain, um, Flake and McCain, a, a delicious but structurally unreliable chocolate bar and a frozen pizza. Uh, both men were truly modern Republicans, vehement opponents of every aspect of the Trump presidency and everything they ever did outside the Senate chamber. Um, on the Senate floor, of course, it was knee pads on, presidential zipper down because Republican, um, which is important. With these guys, you knew where they stood or knelt. Uh, and or nilt, and I really don't need this uh, mental image right now. <laughs> Bad luck. <laughs> You've had your breakfast. You'll be fine. Um, yeah, because consistency in defence of white supremacy is is no vice. Now, F- Flake quit. Um, McCain uh, himself is now filling another nationally significant hole in the ground, and his spot is currently filled with a placeholder, not unlike our prime ministership. Um, uh, John Kill, the the cardboard cutout in question, is is of course a 76-year-old former, well, US senator for Arizona, and I'll leave you to guess what colour he is and the party he represents. But this, it was with a heavy heart that I learned that going into this Senate race, uh, even Arizona had finally swallowed the Kool-Aid of modernity. The uh, Republican candidate was Martha McSally, the sort of candidate that only the Americans seemed to throw up, a former combat pilot, top of her class at the Air War College graduate of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government and three-term Republican congresswoman. And her opponent was uh, Kirsten Sinema, who is a Dantean vision of hell from at least some perspectives. Former Green Party activist, three-term Democratic congressman, woman, uh, bisexual and blonde and probably four more utterly disqualifying characteristics, but... Being blonde, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't you have to be blonde to be a female member of the Republican Party? Well, she's a member of the Democratic Party, which is one of the things that makes oh, her hang- genuinely oh, extraordinary. Oh. So, uh, clearly, the race the quicker the quicker amongst of the audience will have already realised that the the, the uh, one of the important characteristics of that race is that both of these candidates are women, uh, white women, but still women, which meant that clearly there was simply no good outcome of this for Arizona. And in the result, cinema, which is but like an S, like Satan, was elected and thus Arizona ruined forever. Um, the experience of the rest of the world with female elected officials must sh- ought surely have been a warning. I mean, our own flirtation with female premiership scarred Australia t- forever with the introduction of the world's smallest and shortest-lived emissions reduction policy and an Orwellian scheme to financially support the neighbor- nation's disabled citizens. Um and she also tried to push through some sort of comprehensive school funding deal, as I recall, which was so comprehensively misguided that successive governments have made 
really quite significant changes to the typeface that it was printed in. And this is really starting to sound like the the end of the American Republic as we know. It, it is. I mean, no good can come of this. Uh, whether this whether the election of this clitoris wielding communist will mean Arizona faces horrors such as we've suffered through remains to be seen. But um, to those who say that democracy still has any place in modern governments, finally, have you no shame? It's an important question, but uh, Nicholas, I'm going off to a, a very different topic for my first one. I I have uh, uh, come to the conclusion that too much shit to do is the problem. And uh, my attention was drawn to, here's a quote, this is from a book, time management hacks, life hacks, sleep hacks, work hacks, these all reflect an obsession with trying to squeeze more time out of the day, but rearranging your daily patterns to find more time for work isn't the problem. Too much shit to do is the problem, and the only way to get more done is to have less to do. Saying no is the only way to claw back time. Don't shuffle 12 things so that you can do them in a different order. Don't set timers to move on from this or that. Eliminate seven of the 12 things and you'll have time left for the five. It's not time management. It's obligation management and everything else is snake oil. Now, that is a quote from a book called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, uh, which is, a, I, I think, a, a noble ambition by two guys, Jason Fried and David Heinemann Hansen. They run a company uh, which is nominally headquartered in Chicago but is spread across the US called Basecamp, and they run software as a service um, uh, project management stuff and customer relationship management software. And and they have been very successful as, well, I don't want to call them a startup now. They've been going for years. But they had this radical idea that they might be more successful as a business if they charged their customers money, which, which I know will come as a shock to the startup community. And for some years, they've been treating their employees as human beings. They have a compulsory four-day work week, and they found they get more done because people can just have a life outside that. They've decided to trust their employees, so they give everyone a, a company credit card, and they let them buy stuff for their job because why not? They don't, like, you know, sort of oversight that with, with like, dragon tendencies. A lovely... A lovely line from the blurb for the book is work claws away at life. Life has become work's leftovers, the doggy bag, the remnants, the scraps. That's just not okay. It's unacceptable. So my question to you, Nicholas, have your thoughts about the nature of work and productivity changed over the years? That's a question without notice. I should preface any answer, I say, uh, by uh, pointing out that um, uh, nothing that I say in response to that should be taken, I hope will ever be heard by my employers, and certainly this does not represent no, my, official, it, position, <laughs> my official position. Um, work, sorry, the question was, has, has my view of work changed over the years? My view of work has changed over the years only to this extent. Um, uh i as i've got older i've managed to do less and less of it um which has uh, always been the goal 
Um, th- there possibly was a time. It, 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 I don't think it has changed very much, is, I think is what I'm groping towards. Back when I was about 18 or 20, I had this notion that work would be something I could throw myself into and enjoy, and that lasted a week And after I got my first job. And ever since then, I realized that my essential attitude throughout my teenage years was, in fact, the correct one, which is that work, rather like breakfast, is something to let other people do while you're lying down with a book in a different room. Um, my, my view on that has now not changed uh, with my 50th birthday approaching. And I, uh, a little while ago, did go to the four-day week and uh, haven't yet had the courage to walk into my boss's office and say, uh, "Let's." Uh, I want to talk about three days, thanks. Because I think that that, that, is, that, is, that is work-life balance. Easter every week. <sighs> Jesus wouldn't have enjoyed that, though, would no. he? No. Can you imagine Easter every week if you were Jesus? Off we go again. Yeah. Get another cross. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, professional footballers bounce back after about three days to have another run. So, you know, if if he's in training for it, I don't see why he shouldn't be. I mean, he is a professional at this, presumably. Well, he's meant to be the best, <laughs> well, that's right? right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Is, is, oh, one th- oh, go on. No, it's a, yes, the figure the, the the figure against which all other crucifixions are measured. <laughs> Even Spartacus has which, nothing on it. I mean, it's which brings me to the curse of unstructured email, which has to be one of the. Uh, I mean, if you're talking productivity, unstructured email has to be the thing. Back uh, when I was a young man, uh, shortly before the Boer War. Uh, my first full-time job was in the Federal Public Service. Co- sorry, Commonwealth Public Service, I have to say. And back then, people knew how to label things and file things. There was actually a a unit of the organisation called the Registry, and old school public servants will know about the Registry because the Registry took care of the files and the files were full of documents and every document in the file had a number. And to get a job in the public service, you had to answer difficult questions such as, if you receive a letter about tram timetables, do you file it under finance, transport or personnel? And like that seems to be a straightforward concept. But in the age of computers, an email is now filed under the subject line, even if it's about tram timetables, it's about help it's still not working or thanks or whatever other random subject line the person had. You just usually filed under re colon forward colon forward colon re colon thanks. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that's got to do with uh, four-day working weeks, but fuck, it pisses me off. Yeah, and and it means that that in that uh, files now become one vast amorphous mass, and instead of uh, having to go to a set of structured documents on a shelf, one is usually presented with the the problem of uh, utilizing a search engine to trawl through tens of thousands, literally, of emails on on some of the matters I work on, uh, and and it becomes quite an art. Not only does it become that constant competition between uh, computing power and speed of access as it tries to trawl through this vast database and, and on which you're always skating the edge because companies want to be able to use as much, you know, get as much out of their systems as possible. Um, but then, of course, you're in, the, you're in that, that, um, that art, really. It's not a science, that art of trying to structure 
I'm trying to find the email. It was about, oh, it was about 2016, could have been 2017. It was about this particular issue. But, you know, 497 of the emails in the file will mention that particular word. So now you've got to come up with some vast arcane structure to a search that might narrow it down to 200, which you can then manually check. And all because some person's been too fucking lazy to change the subject line to suggestion for tram timetable. Yeah. Letter X A T O reissue. Succinctly succinctly described in three words. Yes, hell is other people. Even in an office of six people, hell is other people, and now I sincerely trust that my employers are not listening. Ladies and gentlemen, it has reached that point in the podcast where we need to have a look at one trigger word or three trigger words. As you know, people uh, uh, pay good money to throw words into the conversation to see where we go with them. This time, for this episode, we only have six words to choose from, uh, so we're going to draw them from the water jug of integrity. That's it there. Uh, Two at a time, and they will be our conversation topics. Uh, We're here at the Alex Hotel, the Alexandra Hotel in Lura, and I'm videoing this. You can see this on the podcast website to prove that it's all above board. Set one. We have... There it is. Uh... The word is beer from Frank Filipponi. And the second one in this set. Which takes a little while. Sunburn from Joel Michael. So we have beer and sunburn. Well, Nicholas, how about I go first after that one? You're welcome. The first thing that hit me about that was sunburn. This is not so much a thing anymore. When I was a kid, as I say, shortly before the Boer War, when you went down to the beach in summer, everyone got fearfully, fearfully sunburnt. And then they were, you know, lobster red. They were so lobster red they could become the the liberal leader in the state of Victoria. And then a day or two later, your skin would peel off. It was like if you played around with that uh, high school or, sorry, junior school um, glue, clag glue, and you got that over yourself or, no, not clag, the other one. Anyway, glue over yourself, and it would become this, like, sheets of peeled stuff. You'd pull off yourself. This was, this was kind of And you'd pull it normal. off yourself in great inch square pieces i mean oh bigger than that sheets of dead skin you just peel off yourself and like that's not a thing anymore because we invented sunscreen and there was a massive campaign slip slop slap and and australians will know that slogan very well and over a generation we we realized that maybe frying yourself in the sun to the point at which your skin peels off is not healthy and here's a research project for someone with a, access to the Googles. Um, have the melanoma figures decri- declined in accordance? Oh, absolutely. 
And what's also changed is that the amount of time people spend in the sun has declined to the point where uh, vitamin D deficiency is now a significant health problem. Yes. Yeah, we see you see the kids all traipsing around in, in crocodile lines, all with their uh, legionnaires caps on, um, most of them looking pale and pasty and as if the wind would blow them away. Yeah, Uh not that I wish to endorse the view that everything was better in the good old days when we all had melanoma. Well, keep your, no, keep your hats I mean, on, kids. Uh, given that my own mother died less than two years ago from uh, essentially a, uh, a life of skin cancer, uh, you know, the, it gets to the point where every year you pop into the medico and have another melanoma burnt off, and, and that, that does tend to be a, a losing game. <laughs> As, as she found out. Yes. If, as she found in, out. In, in the unlikely event that my children ever hear this, children, put your hats on. <laughs> you should not play this podcast to your children. I may not have much choice in the matter. It'll be on the internet. Ah, uh, yes. And they're growing up very fast, aren't they? Yeah, certainly fast enough to type something into Google. Well, that's all about sunburn. Um I do have some other memories, like that that sickly green lime cordial, which is nothing like the Bickford's brown lime cordial we have uh, in the modern age. It was this awful dark green, overly sweet crap that we all had to to eat in summer. Also, watermelon in the beach. I've always thought watermelon is is like a bullshit fruit because it's 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 just mostly water. And I sugar. mean, sure they're huge and sugar and they're huge. Oh, look at the size of this watermelon. Yeah, it's it's just fucking water. Like what is the what is water the with pips in it? Yes, yes. You have to keep digging them out. Uh, but very quickly on the beer side, um, when I was in Washington, D.C. recently, uh, there's there's a place uh, called the D.C. Brow House uh, making beer, and their Corruption Ale is lovely and also well-named. The only thing that comes to my mind when I hear beer sunburn, well, I'm instantly taken back to the opening scene in Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, in which his... Uh, the author and his Samoan attorney are driving across the desert in an open-top car and uh, the lawyer is pouring beer on his chest to, and I quote, facilitate the tanning process. I'm sure that will help, yeah. I have never tried uh, beer-induced tanning. Um, Certainly back in the day, that probably would have been the best thing to do with American beer. I'm pleased, as I said, to hear that they're coming around I read that book with fondness. I read it at university, and like many people of my generation, I suspect took it as our uh, as a self help manual and guide to life rather more than was sensible. Um, <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> I didn't abetted, and um, uh, yes, it's possible that we're still uh, recovering from it. And it is possible also that I still have a a desire to get an open top car at some point and drive. From Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Well, you are approaching middle age. Yeah, I am approaching middle age. All I need is a Samoan attorney. Uh, look, we can arrange this. I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can. We should, we should probably move on. So thank you to Frank Filipponi and Joel Michael for those words. And here's our second set. Set two of the uh, trigger words. There's another one out of the... Uh, water jug of integrity it is from Oberon's ghost and it is Baroque 
Baroque. And uh, another one in this set of two. From Frank Filipponi again, politicians. So we have politicians and Baroque. That's These set two. These are two wonderful words. Um, I, I should mention that uh, the first radio I ever did uh, back in 1981, I'll go with maybe 82, the first uh, work I did presenting radio was to present Baroque music. Uh, and so I do know quite a bit uh, about, as it says uh, in, in the definition of Baroque, major composers include Vivaldi, Bach and Handel, which, which I do know a bit about. Uh, Baroque also relates to uh, the work of artists Caravaggio and Rubens, uh, and it's a style of European architecture of the 17th and 18th century uh, that's characterised by ornate detail. And, and where I want to start this, Nicholas, is that ornate detail is in the sense of our politicians, our words are Baroque politicians, we don't really have this idea of five-dimensional chess that you might imagine with all of these intricate details. And uh, if I can uh, bring in one example, uh, Maurice Payne, who's Australia's uh, foreign minister now, on ABC's 7.30 uh, on Monday night, Betrayed, as uh, one person on Twitter suggested, a near total lack of detail about our new base on Manus. So what's happening in Papua New Guinea, there has been the annual meeting of APEC, the Asia-Pacific uh, Economic Cooperation. There's, there's the cooperation as a kind of noun by itself. And uh, Scott Morrison, who is Australia's pro tem uh, prime minister, uh, suggested there would be a naval base on on Manus uh, Island, which there was during World War Two, quite a significant one, I should say. Uh, and and when on seven thirty, uh, Foreign Minister Payne was asked about this, uh, she was kind of missing a lot of detail. Australia has announced that with the US it will set up a, set up a joint naval base on Manus Island. What for? So I think it's important to remember that it's a Papua New Guinea naval base. So uh, it's a naval base in which Papua New Guinea has invited Australia and the US to uh, to partner. But what's it for? One of the, well, one of the reasons uh, from our perspective is that Lombrum is already the home of uh, the older Pacific patrol boats that Papua New Guinea holds. We are gifting them as part of our Pacific Maritime Security Program new Guardian-class patrol boats, larger, more capable. The base needs to be upgraded. The facilities need to be developed. And will we'll there be, be Australian personnel and ships based there? Uh, well, not necessarily Australian ships, but we already have Australian personnel based uh, in locations in Papua New Guinea with the PNG. A big expansion, though, in this space? Not a very big expansion, no, but part of our uh, upgraded, if you like, set of activities under that Pacific Maritime Security Program, just as one example. But we do a lot of this work. The Defence Cooperation Program that we have with Papua Papua New Guinea is our largest defence cooperation program in the world. So who's paying mostly for the base, us, the US or PNG? Uh, well, we'll be making a contribution out of uh, out of defence uh, funds. Papua New Guinea will make their own contribution. The US will make their own. Who's making but the, the biggest? The details are yet to be finalised. Why is, is Australia deepening its ties with the US at a time when it's being led by an inconsistent and unreliable president? Well, 
It's an interesting way to characterise uh, deepening our ties. Our ties are already very, very deep and very, very, uh, very, very strong. Whether we are uh, developing our engagement in the Pacific or more broadly internationally, uh, that is a consistent approach from Australia. We uh, have a, the deepest alliance uh, of, uh, of the region and it is one that we value enormously. So we work together very, very closely. But is it still a trustworthy partner under the leadership of Donald Trump? Well, we have... Uh, the strongest foundations in that partnership and uh, we work closely with them and yes it is a strong and trustworthy partner a strong and trustworthy partner nicholas what do you make of all that um the the usual level of of um uh, grasp of detail that we've come to expect from our politicians they are lovely words baroque politicians they're fantastic Um, words i I can't but i just can't work out how they fit together in any sort of sentence that one would use in the modern day, um, Barack, as you said, has in sort of suggestions of complexity and beauty. Um, I haven't heard of, uh, I haven't heard much complexity out of federal parliament for quite some time. Uh, certainly, no subtlety. Um, and as for beauty, we are sadly lacking. But thank you to Oberon's ghost and Frank Filipponi then for those trigger words. <laughs> Unless you had something astounding to add, no. No, I think I think I, I, no. I, the, the 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 less the less I say about federal parliamentarians, the, the the more this will remain a family show fit for fit for listening to. More trigger words a bit later. Australia's favourite Scooby Doo villain. Senator David Leinhelm has called for Tasmania and South Australia to be expelled from the Federation on the grounds that we, and that we, of course, represents a disclosure of interest here, uh, cost a bit of money. Um, There's some things to love about this. The intellectual courage of the proposal for a start. Lesser minds might content themselves with the notion that in any system of redistribution, there will inevitably be those who are net contributors and those who receive more than they giveth, uh, where the nation by the sweat of its brow and the ingenuity of its citizens is able to flop out a hundred bucks onto the table, the party of the first part who kicked in 60 bucks will always have to face the risk of maybe getting only 55 of them back, while the useless scrounger who could only pop up 40 manages to slink from the room with 45 and still hope to sleep at night. But uh, no, says uh, Senator Farnsworth from Futurama. Good news, everyone. This need not be the case. In the Lionhelmian future, all states will be able to turn up with their 60 bucks and take home 250 by the simple expedient of telling the temporarily embarrassed that they're now basically New Zealand only without the hobbits. And so if they wouldn't mind just fucking off right a tiny bit, that'd be great. And people from proper states can get on with building utopia. Uh, I think I need to put this into some parliamentary context, don't I? Or is that too wonky? No, please do. Okay. Do we have, do I mean, we have, do we have I, the man himself? Yeah, this is my burden. I spend way too much time listening to Senate debates and committee hearings live. It, it is apparently the burden that journalists have. And on Monday night, uh, we had Senator David Lanhelm, who is of the uh, Liberal Democrat Party, and I'll put in parentheses, the only reason he's in the Senate is that people voting read the Liberal bit and thought he was a Liberal Party senator and didn't notice the Liberal Democrat bit 
and so he was voted in. Anyway, on Monday night, there was a debate on one of the most magnificently named laws in Australia's history, the Treasury Laws Amendment brackets making sure every state and territory gets their fair share of GST in brackets bill 2018. Oh, I'm getting it's, it's a, I know. I, I mean, and this is, this is the best kind of wonkishness. Uh, because under the Constitution, only the federal government can can levy income taxes and, and other taxes. So what happens is the goods and services tax, currently 10% on pretty much everything you buy, goes to the federal government, but the state governments provide all the services like, like hospitals and schools and police forces and so on. So there's an arcane process by which... Uh, this money is distributed. And, and of course, it's not based on, well, per population or per dollar or whatever it is. Uh, and so we have this bill before Parliament, which, amongst other things, would redistribute, that is, uh, give to some states rather than other states some $9 billion Australian dollars. And uh, this is how uh, the illustrious uh, Senator David Leonard-Mahulm described it on Monday night. Of course, the great bulk of the $9 billion in handouts authorised by the bill is being thrown at the beggar state and territory governments, in particular those in Tasmania and South Australia. Regardless of which party, major par, party is in power, these beggar governments continue to hold back the prosperity of the people they are supposed to represent. These beggar governments only see upside from preventing development, from smothering their small businesses in red tape and from making fanciful commitments to renewable energy. They should feel the downside of more expensive energy fewer bustling small businesses and fewer jobs. But for these beggar governments, such a downside is merely, merely a recipe for more and more compensation from taxpayers in the rest of the Federation. I don't expect this Senate to object to throwing billions of dollars of taxpayers' funds at beggar governments in places like Tasmanian, Tasmania and South Australia. After all, all the major parties are infested with a disproportionate number of beggar politicians from those states and territories. But it should. In fact, what we need is a Begxit, where the beggar states exit the Federation. But the beggar governments of these states never do anything for themselves, so they won't exit of their own accord. The rest of us, the rest of us with the Liberal Democrats at the vanguard, will need to arrange it for them. Of course, Senator, fuck you, Jack, I'm all right, didn't actually mean any of that, except the part that roughly translates to, hey, media, I'm over here. This here is a kind of progressive sort of populism without saying anything about foreigners like that trailer trash ginger nut from Queensland, because after all, I just need 4% of New South Wales to vote for me each time to guarantee me 200 grand a year for life. And I reckon a few of them Muslims and Chinese probably hate paying tax as much as I do. But the new economic vision having been formulated, it fell to the foot soldiers of perpetual responsibility to put some intellectual flesh on the bones, and so asked Adelaide News site in Daily, what do you reckon, Michael Nowak, the South Australian member of the Liberal Democrats' national executive? Well, uh, said Nowak, um, 
the party policy was for decentralisation and the more power that South Australians had over their destiny, the better, he was quoted saying. Because, you know, getting fucked by your friends and your body dumped in the woods to save everyone a fiver is just so goddamn empowering. I don't think that our South Australian members would be upset with that position, Noack told reporters, uh, apparently unaware that he had neatly encapsulated the mental capacity of the party's South Australian members for everyone to see. I personally reckon that Senator Farnsworth would be better off sticking to his usual pronouncements about giving every child a an assault rifle. Um, alternatively, we could empower the senator by giving him complete power over his own destiny, free from any interference by others, uh, perhaps in a steel trunk dropped just off the edge of the continental shelf. I would support this uh, this notion. Landholm's a fascinating creature, though. I I th- I find that. He writes words well, but he delivers them exceedingly poorly. I mean, the clip we heard is him just droning along. And his his entire thesis of the universe, which is pretty much that of all um, modern libertarians, is, I don't want you telling me what to do. Yeah, including telling me what to do with my money because it's my money and fuck off. And how dare you ask me to pay something that might benefit someone else because I'm a selfish cunt. Said the man on the, uh, being paid at the public expense. Yeah, it is. It is, the, it, is the, it, is, it is a political philosophy you can hear in the front bar of almost any pub, certainly any country pub you want to go to, uh, espoused by uh, anyone who's just been pissed off by the wife or found the modern world just slightly annoying and wants to tell you uh, how everything can just get fucked. Moving on to our next topic, I stumbled uh, across online um, uh, today, actually, and I don't know its provenance, but it was a little chart saying 1938 cost of living, and it's American, so you need to translate this into the America, but this is, what, 1938 is here for, what, 80 years ago. Uh, I think I've done the arithmetic right. But back then in America, the average income was $1,731 a year. A new house uh, cost you $3,900 to buy, which was two and a quarter times the average wage, which is fascinating. A new car, $860, the average rent. Uh, $27 a month and there's a few other things in it again uh, as usual you can have a look on the podcast website for this little graphic now I wanted to do the sums now we all know that we're suffering from rising real estate prices in Australia which rise much faster than wages do and the same uh, is true across most of the the the, the white focus sphere I just wanted to do the sums the figure for average full-time earnings in Australia in the second quarter of 2018, so the last uh, figures that we have, $82,436 a year. And, and quite frankly, I would love to earn that much. Um, if you do the sums, to be equivalent to that figure – the price of a new house in Australia right now should be $185,000. 
And back then in 1938, with the average rent at $27 a month, that's $6.30 a week, uh, that is 0.0036 of the annual wage, uh, do the maths and the average rent in Australia for a, for a house should be under $300 a week. This is not a thing that is currently happening. So I, I don't know what to say about that except to point to the obvious discrepancy in the figures uh, and to mention that in the uh, the kind of discussions of, of wealth and poverty and so on, the people uh, look at new start allowance, and I know there's currently a, a debate uh, happening in, in federal politics in Australia about maybe raising the new start allowance by uh, $75 a week. I will point out that it has not been indexed. It is way below the poverty line. And the poverty line as defined kind of takes into account that there is more to life than just paying your rent and food for the current week. It also has to cover random things like uh, dental and medical expenses. It has to cover insurance. It has to cover education uh, for yourself and your family. And maybe, God forbid, taking a holiday. But I just found that that Although we, we obviously have things a lot better uh, in many ways in, in the year 2018, that the 1938 cost of living meant that at least if you're on average income, you could get yourself a house. In a couple of years. In a couple of years. There's the, I, I, like you, I don't really know what to say about that. One of the, one of the aspects of it which does fascinate me is the shift away from uh, the, the concept of a, of a living wage for a family. Um, one of the underpinning social expectations, of course, of uh, a house costing twice what a, uh, only two years' work is that that's two years' work that is expected to feed a family of five that is to say, it's the man's work uh, and it is not expected that any other member of that household will be earning an income. Well, that is true because uh, there, there wasn't the uh, the level of mechanical assistance in the home to help uh, the good wifey woman. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Monday laundry was a much more labour-intensive task. The, the ironing was a much more labour-intensive task. The going for shopping for food was a thing you had to do every day because there wasn't refrigeration and so on. And it was backed up by social expectations and indeed professional requirements, which meant things like uh, that women would resign their positions when, when getting married. That minority of women who were actually in work, that was only while they were single. I, mean, I recall it being, uh, I think it was a public service requirement that married women would retire. Oh, absolutely. Right up until... I think well into the 1970s, uh, certainly during the 1960s. And this also fed into the idea of suburban isolation in uh, the, the United States at first, but then uh, again throughout the, the Anglosphere, uh, when uh, the new post-war suburbs were built and houses were further apart, and yet all of these labour-saving devices were coming into the home, uh, women had less to do 
uh, they still had plenty to do, obviously, but they they didn't have the the level of of harder manual labour of maintaining the home. But they're also spread out into the suburbs, uh, and public transport wasn't a thing, uh, and uh, uh, various other social aspects hadn't been there, which is why. Uh, all of the 1960s American sitcoms are about uh, isolated American uh, women uh, hitting the booze and drugs in the afternoon because they really didn't connect to anyone. It's a very sad period of history. It's a very sad period of history and one in which, um, uh, again, I'm fascinated by the the uh, position that those women found themselves in. Uh, and uh, occasionally have to convince myself that what I want in my life is actually so very different from the hell that they were escaping. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you and I both live in not the core part of cities, although we both live together in the core part of cities, and now we stay in touch with each other using the magic of the intertubes. Uh, We have so many more opportunities to do things in our lives while at the same time being geographically separated but, from all of that. But given half a chance, I have a strong suspicion that I might end up quietly sitting by myself, whacked out on Valium and with a gentle smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, obviously, that is the desirable outcome. <laughs> but, but then my character flaws do not need further airing. Nor mine. Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time! Occasionally on this podcast, it used to be every episode, but occasionally on this podcast, uh, we award elephant stamps of approval uh, for excellence in the category of thinking. Uh, We've got two today, and I'm going to let uh, Nicholas uh, award the first one. Well, I can't decide if this bloke deserves an elephant stamp or to be named Australian of the Year. Uh, possibly both. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Shane Swanscott. No licence, no problem. Shane Swanscott needed to go fishing. Solution? He hooked up his tinny to a mobility scooter. Well, I lost my licence and pretty much at the same time I'd finished fixing up my boat. I was going to push it down by hand, but I thought, why not use this? Look carefully. That's a police car going past. I'm sitting at the lights like this at the turning lane, ready to turn, and the high patrol slows down, like comes past and just goes like, what the f***? <laughs> the scooter cost just $400. Jumping on, babe. <laughs> a runabout for Shane and partner Kira, until he gets his licence back. There's a max speed. But you get about 10 k's out of a tank. His makeshift tow bar is broken. Yeah, I'm not real good with a welder. His boat is going nowhere. 4.3 metre staysail for 72 stroke horsepower. Absolutely flies. And the police are deciding what to charge him with. I do not know. I'll find out Sunday. At least he's big on the internet and Kira is sticking by him. So this is a true love story. <laughs> Mark Burrows, Nine News. Nine News. See for yourself. And I do recommend you uh, head to the podcast website and see for yourself. There's a link uh, this is glorious work, Nicholas. It is. A, and, a, a boat being towed by a mobility and, and the description, the 4.3 metre, really doesn't do it justice because when you see it stacked up behind the, the scooter, utterly dwarfing the thing, uh, and then for a moment wonder what would happen if he ever had to go downhill on any sort of grade, it, it, the, the, the mental images are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I mean, you're right. Is this guy 
uh, an idiot or a true Australian. I, I think I think both, and he certainly deserves an elephant stamp. Thank you, Nicholas. He votes. That's the best part. Well, for my part, um, I mean, picking something Donald Trump has said is way too easy. I know he suggested that we rake all the forests of Finland uh, today uh, or this week. Uh, you can look that one. Uh, you can look up that one for yourselves. Uh, but I'm fascinated uh, this time by Gmail's uh, new artificial intelligence-based auto-replies. And uh, Rowan Pierce, who writes for Computer World, uh, he received an email and uh, Gmail's uh, uh, AI-based auto-replies suggested replies, never email me again, your email has caused me physical pain, and please, I'm trying to forget you exist. Uh, so I'm not sure whether that is the magic of artificial intelligence or or just wrong, but uh, definitely an elephant stamp of approval to Gmail artificial intelligence. You could we, we could think of a few to add to suggestions to add to that. Please nominate an address at which you will take uh, accept service of the restraining order. What? I mean, I, I, I think Google. I think Google could get, could go wider here. And finally, set three. We have from Frank Pilipponi again. Pies. Pies. And the final one. Evanescent from Nick Andrew. And if you know what evanescent means, please let us know. So pies and evanescent. All right. Well, the definition of evanescent is soon passing out of sight or memory or existence, quickly fading or disappearing, such as, quote, the evanescent Arctic summer, end quote. I don't know where Google gets their definitions from. You want to have a go at this, Nicholas? You're going to tell me that it was complete coincidence that uh, the Rolling Stones' Fade to Black was playing behind you in oh i hadn't i hadn't realized oh well played well played no that was just some bullshit boomer band the alex on sunday afternoon i i was hating it pies they were playing pies evanescent i've got Uh, look i i i have a thing i have a thing i've I've got i've got reminiscences about my mother's uh lemon meringue pies as a child but that 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 would actually mean i've reached my anecdotage if i start dribbling on about about (laughs) my 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 sainted mother's uh unequaled desserts of of yesteryear i can't go there okay this actually leads into what i have uh, is that my friend justin warren tweeted the other day his pie alignment chart now there have been discussions over the years of what constitutes a pie, right? So he has posted a chart, and you can see this on the podcast website, of structure versus ingredient. So if you're a, a structural purist, 
a pie must be enclosed by pastry on all sides and an ingredient purist will say that the filling must be savoury. So enclosed by pastry, savoury filling, the Aussie meat pie is your archetypical lawful good pie, right? I mean, there is no argument. That is a pie. Yeah, no, yeah, certainly. My children, if my children will eat it, it's 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 the base level, and and they will. Right. So, so we can we can switch to more neutral ingredient values. Like the pie can be sweet or savoury. So we're thinking of a Christmas mince pie. There, still surrounded by pastry. I'm on board. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about? The pie can be filled with any food, like a pop pop tart, which is, I mean, Christ knows what's in a pop tart. Uh, yeah, is that a pie? Here's a tasting. It's just jam, isn't it? Jam in jam in in bad toast <laughs> pie. No. no, no. I'm okay. I'm I'm an ingredient neutral at best here. Okay, so now we go down to the structure, right? Okay, not that it has to be enclosed by pastry on all sides, but it it's enclosed but not necessarily by pastry. So a shepherd's pie, which the top layer is just is potato. mashed potato. Yeah. It's revolting. Is that a pie? Well, I'm prepared to accept. If I have to accept that in order to accept lemon meringue as a pie, then I'm, you know, ah. my broad church will include the shepherd. Uh, because a lemon meringue, because crumbs, you know, a crumb, a, a breadcrumb or biscuit crumb, Base uh, is clearly a pie. Otherwise, my sainted I mean, mother, etc., etc., and constituted pastry, isn't it? Well, it's. I mean, I mean, it's. Look, I- any definition of pie which excludes lemon meringue is, you know, you're coming up against the Fryer family here, and you're going to be in trouble. Well, funnily enough, uh, Justin's chart includes as ingredient neutral, structure neutral, a lemon. Indeed, meringue it pie. does, which I'm looking at now, and 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 on that basis. Uh, clearly, that has to be in uh, any any line through that chart which excludes that is is morally wrong. Okay, well, we need to move on to structure neutral. It's not necessarily pastry, but the filling can be anything. Tortellini? No, no, tortellini is not a pie. <sighs> tortellini is All just right, one let- of the fourteen different sorts of ravioli. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on quickly then. Uh, and if we're going all the way down to structure chaotic, he says structure rebel on his chart, uh, there are certain inconsistencies in his thing, like there are two things labelled chaotic neutral, so I, I think Justin needs to work on this. But uh, structure chaotic but still savoury is a deep dish pizza a pie. No, again, no, that's that's clearly not the case. All what right. even is a deep dish uh, pizza? A pizza is a piece of bread with cheese on top. What's what's? I don't even know what a deep I, dish I, pizza I, is. No, is I, I don't. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I will, this up. I will make it. I will make inquiries. Uh, so we were going ingredient neutral, but uh, structure chaotic. Uh, is a pumpkin pie a pie? Well, I, again, I don't know that I've ever had a pumpkin pie. It's an American. Well, thing, I know right? it is, and it's a sweet thing, is it not? Uh, yeah, it's a dessert yes. food. I mean, I yeah, think yeah, and this is possibly true of all American cooking, but that it is intended to be a dessert food. <laughs> can I can I just rephrase that? All American food is dessert laden food. with sugar, at the very least. All right. Uh, 
yeah, pumpkin pie is a sweet thing, and and I I don't know why it is because pumpkin soup is not a sweet soup. You pepper it up, and I don't I don't know that Americans understand pumpkin. I don't know that Americans understand food. Be that as it may, shall we move on, please? Uh, if we're going with uh, structurally, a pie can be any edible container. And ingredient-wise, the filling can be any uh, food. Is soup in a bread bowl a pie? No, soup in a bread bowl is a crime against humanity. Oh, but if you are at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, the the clam chowder in a bread roll as your bowl is really, really nice. Really? Stick it on your lap for an hour. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nicholas. And thank you to Frank Filipponi and Nick Andrew for those words. All I want to say at this stage is that passing out of sight, memory or existence is pretty much like this podcast. That's all we've got time for. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Stilgarian. It's been a lot of fun. Should we should we do this again sometime uh, soon? It would be a great pleasure. Absolutely. Stay tuned. We will do this thing. Well, that's all the edict for now. The next episode of this podcast will be soon, possibly with Nick Fry. If you would like to contribute to the ongoing ongoingness, please go to stogarian.com slash tip, empty your wallet. Until the next episode, I'm Stogarian. Have a good one. The 9pm edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.